The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this uh, the special gift of this time together. We thank you for the gift of Christian fellowship. We're grateful for it. We thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you put in our lives, O oh Lord, that uh, we look forward to fellowshipping with, that we're not alone in this world. But we have people who love us and who pray for us and people who set a good example for us as well. And Lord, I, I mean in a very healthy way that we can have good fellowship with those that have gone before us in the Christian faith who have set a good example. And Father, I pray that we could learn from John Calvin uh, to tonight. Father, I thank you that he is still alive in your presence, that if you were ever his God in this world, that you are his God now. And uh, we thank you for his faith in you and for his example. And so I pray as we study his life, O Lord, we will really only do so to know you better. You are the unchanging God, the same yesterday and today and forever, and that we would also learn the scriptures um, the way he taught them and be more uh, acutely trained so that we can rightly divide the word of truth and understand it. Be with me, O Lord. Give me a special measure of your grace. Guard me from error. Help me, O Lord, to teach only what is helpful for building these brothers and sisters up. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, I just want to kind of give a, a bit of a defense for church history in general as a devotional exercise. Um, I love studying church history. Uh, I enjoy studying figures from church history because um, I think there's value in seeing how God has used individuals in the past um, to do great things for Him. And I I don't think that there's anything strange about us having in some kind of um, spiritual way fellowship with them as we read the record of their lives and as we try to understand how God's used them. For me, to some degree, it's kind of an extension of, uh, of uh, the so-called Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 that God willing will get to eventually on Sunday mornings. You remember how there's all these heroes of the faith, men and women who have done great things for God, served Him faithfully in their generation, either by achieving great victories or by suffering greatly with faith, either way in Hebrews 11. And then after that, it says in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... It's an incredible expression. What do you think when you come across that in Hebrews 12, 1? Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I'm sorry? They're watching us. They're in the stands. We're in the amphitheater. We're in the Coliseum. They're encouraging us. Yeah. Cheering us on, hopefully. Yes. Looking away at key moments. Um, and then looking back when we're doing well. Um, but yeah, encouraging us. What do you think the author meant? I mean, what does he mean by surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the word witnesses. And witnesses to what? And, uh, you know, you just had to keep, keep reading. It says, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So we could argue that they're witnessing to the kind of race we should be running. 
you know, that we should be running by faith, that we should be throwing off sin, and that they're witnessing to a kind of Christian life. But I think there's an even better answer than that. Just read the next verse. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. So they're really witnessing to Jesus, thinking about, about Christ, you know. And if you look at Hebrews 11, um, speaking about, uh, about Moses, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? That, that Moses was treasuring Christ when he turned his back on his inheritance as a son of Pharaoh and ran and, to be with the people of God. And uh, the author to Hebrews didn't make a mistake there. It was really Christ that he was treasuring. So what are these witnessing, witnesses witnessing to? And they're witnessing to Christ, helping us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So what does that have to do with our study of Calvin? Well, tonight we're just going to go over a biography, really, is all we're doing. We're going to look at the events of Calvin's life. And you may say, you know, what value is there in us studying the life of someone like Calvin? Why should we learn anything? Why don't we just spend time studying the Bible? And, you know, I think it'd be obviously valuable for us always to study the Scripture. But I still think there's some value in this, uh, in studying the life of great, uh, great heroes of the faith. You know, uh, as studying, looking in the book of Revelation during our prayer time here, thinking about examples in the book of Revelation of how there would be a connection to our past life. Uh, you know, it says in, in Revelation 7, this multitude that's standing around the throne from every tribe and language and people and nation, where did they come from? The elder asks John. And John gave a good answer. Sir, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you tell me? I don't know. You tell me. So, well, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. In another place it says that uh, fine linen was given to them fine linen stands for the righteous acts or deeds of the saints. That's a historical record, isn't it? What are the righteous deeds of the saints? Well, they're, they're, they're clothed in them. Um, and it says of, of these that were standing around the throne, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. That's significant. Again implies we know that they did hunger and they did thirst at some point. They suffered. They went through things. So I think history is going to be a big part of heaven. We're going to be studying it and trying to know what God did. So I think there's value in this tonight. Uh, we're not presenting John Calvin as any kind of perfect man, anything like that, but rather that we would see how God was faithful and how his life testified uh, to Christ. So I hope you all have handouts uh, there in the back if you don't have them. Um, I hope I made enough this time. But I want to talk about just how God prepared and shaped John Calvin and then set him in place as pastor in Geneva. So we're just looking at biography tonight. Uh, Calvin was born as somewhat of a second-generation reformer, okay? Uh, so the first-generation reformers would have been, you know, Luther and Zwingli, uh, you know, people like this who were going through in the, in the early, in the teens, 1517, 15, 18, 15, 19. Calvin was born in 1509. So Luther was 25 years old when Calvin was born. It was one of my kind of fun moments when someone told me, you know, they found out that, uh, that Martin Luther believed in predestination was shocked to find out that Luther was a Calvinist, you know, which uh, might have been a bit offensive to Luther, you know, uh, you know, but if Luther was prideful at that moment, he said, look, come on, I was 25 years old when that young whippersnapper was born, 
you know, but uh, we just need to get the history straight. So he was 25 years old when Calvin was born. He nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle door when Calvin was mere, merely eight years old. So Calvin was just a boy at that time. And, uh, you know, started the, the, the Reformation, whose principles we tend to know as the five solas by Scripture or based upon Scripture alone, that Scripture alone will be our... Um, our authority and our guide. We're not going to be looking at tradition, human traditions or the authority of the Pope, but look to, looking to Scripture. And uh, by faith alone, specifically that we are justified by faith alone, that works have no role in our justification. And that all of salvation is by grace alone. Even the gift of faith is coming to us by grace. And so all of it is of grace and, and, and uh, uh, minimization of, of, the, of the human side. We're going to be looking at God and His grace and a focus on Christ, all of it done by Christ alone, uh, His works, His righteousness, and ultimately to the glory of God alone. These themes really dominated Calvin's life and ministry, but that's really kind of what the Reformation was about. Of course, of course, Luther made his famous stand on the Word of God at the Diet of Arms in 1521 when Calvin was merely 12 years old. And so Luther's towering example is courageous stands, preaching, teaching, writing, ministry, forged a Reformation in Germany it stood as a beacon for other reformers. So he was a, a German reformer, uh, but his ideas were getting disseminated. I mean, God had prepared the continent of Europe, Europe for a reformation. I think that the Gutenberg press was designed for Luther and the reformers to come and use. And so they were able to get all of their, their writings out and disseminate them quickly uh, and, and get the word out. And so... Um, even in France, some of these ideas were starting to make their, make their way. Now, John Calvin was born July 10, 1509, so last year. Many Christians observed his 500th, the 500th anniversary of his birth. So, you know, I went my, myself and spoke at a Calvin 500 conference, so that was last year. Did you miss it? I don't think Google had a special day for Calvin on July. Did you see it? I didn't see that. We're always getting these creepy people. You know, with Google. I'm, I'm editorializing here, but why not John Calvin on July 10th? You know, 2009. I think there should have been something there. Did I didn't, I? I didn't notice. My guess is not. What do you think? Probably not. But at any rate, his parents were Gerard and, and Jean Calvin, is the French uh, uh, spelling. Uh, his father was a financial administrator for the Catholic bishop of the Noyon di uh, diocese. He raised his son John to be a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. When Calvin was 11, Gerard used his influence to get John a chaplaincy position at the cathedral. At age 14, then, Calvin was sent to the University of Paris, the best education there was available to him, to study theology and formal preparation for becoming a priest. The University of Paris at that time was steeped in medieval Catholic theology and was untouched by the so-called Lutheran heresy. So that you're getting medieval Catholicism there. You're getting Aquinas and William Ockham and all these others. You're not getting any Luther for sure. Uh, so he would have learned... Yes, please. Yeah. Don't know. Don't know that much about it. Yeah, could be. It could have been just. It could have been a lot of it's money. You know, uh, you get these so-called benefices, and so uh, you know, he's looking toward a career in the church, and this would have been an early form of funding for him. But I don't know much beyond it. All right. Uh, Calvin would have learned little, therefore, of Luther's doctrines initially at the University of Paris. When he was 19, however. His father ran afoul of the Catholic authorities and commanded his son to stop studying theology and to study law instead, perhaps to defend him, I guess, against charges. You know, I can, I can use some help here. 
which Calvin did in fact study for three years in Orléans and Bourges. And during these years, Calvin mastered Greek and studied medieval philosophy through the works of Duns Scotus and William Ockham, Gabriel Beale. Uh, in 1531, when Calvin was 21, his father died and Calvin felt free to pursue his humanistic concerns. Calvin was a humanist, uh, first and foremost, in his education. By this, I meant he, he studied the classics. You know, he studied the Latin writers, the Greek writers, these kinds of things. Uh, and so, you know, the kind of quintessential humanist of that day was Erasmus and uh, others. And just bringing the, uh, you know, the, the cry of the humanist would be to the, to the sources. Let's go back to the sources and let's try to find out what they really taught. You know, kind of reversing the effects of medieval dark ages, etc. Let's try to find out. Remember that what had happened in the middle of the, in the, middle of the 15th century was that Constantinople, had fallen at last, finally, to the, to the uh, Muslims because of gunpowder, and all of those Greek manuscripts had, been, had, had, had flowed west um, away, from the, uh, away from the Muslims. And so uh, the gr- uh, Greek manuscripts, yes, of the church fathers, but especially of the scriptures, had a tremendous impact, as I said, preparing the way for the Reformation. And so this humanist Erasmus had put together a Greek New Testament, um, which was just incredibly explosive. When Zwingli started preaching through the Greek New Testament, uh, just starting at Matthew 1.1 and just going through and preaching, it was like it was a whole new religion, a whole new world, you know, cutting away from the Latin Vulgate temp, uh, translations and all of those things. So all of these things are, are uh, preparatory as Calvin, the humanist, is studying and, and learning. In 1532, he published his first book, and I'm sure you haven't read it, and that is a commentary on Seneca. So this, again, is before he was converted. I have not, and I won't. All right, the time is short, and it's getting shorter, I've noticed. So I'm not going to be reading his commentary on Seneca. Why, his, why does he spell his name differently than his parents' name? I, I don't think he would have. I think it's just a matter of wherever it would have been, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, published or pronounced. I think it's just got to do with the fact that in Latin, and, and in his, he was better known than his father, and so the L was put in instead of U. It's the same kind of thing. It's just a pronunciation. By the way, I'm going to tell you a heresy right now. I don't think that Saul of Tarsus changed his name to Paul. I just don't think so. I think he always had two names. We can talk about that some other time. <laughs> All it says in the book of Acts, then Saul, who was also known as Paul. So don't tell me about the change of name. I, it just bothers me. One of my little pet peeves, okay? I think when he was running in Greek circles, he used Paul, Latin circles, Paul. And when he's in the, in the Jewish circles, he used Saul. I mean, that's my theory, Okay. Please bring verses when you come to argue with me, okay? All right. Calvin is a very private individual, okay? Very much in this way like Jonathan Edwards. Hardly ever referred to himself and his own experiences from the pulpit. And so we don't know a lot about what uh, converted him. We just know he was definitely converted. But we have some little things that come along the way to help us. Not a lot of details. By November of 1533, something as dramatic has happened in his life. Luther's thoughts had by this time been widely disseminated. Calvin must have come in contact with these Reformation ideals. Now, in the winter of 1533, his friend, Nicholas Cott, preached a sermon at the opening of winter term at University of Paris. And the language of the sermon gives evidence that it's possible that Calvin may have been a ghostwriter, similar to his later writings. And so it's possible that that sermon... Uh, preached by his friend, was really Calvin's work. In any case, the parliament under King Francis I called Nicholas Copp to account for his Lutheran-like doctrines, and Copp had to flee, uh, flee the city, as did Calvin. 
and a general persecution at this point, uh, point broke out from King Francis against that, quote, curses, cursed sect of the Lutherans. So Francis was uh, you know, a banner waver for the Roman Catholic Church. And so Protestants or Lutherans at that, that point, they would have been called running for their lives. And so Calvin had to flee as well. And it's clear then at this point, Calvin's crossed the line and become uh, a Christian you know, in, in a Protestant sense. And how is it? Well, this is the closest thing we have to a testimony. Uh, seven years later, he's writing about his own uh, change and, and how he had been struggling to live out his Catholic faith with zeal. This is what he wrote. When lo, a very different form of doctrine started up, uh, not one which led us away from the Christian profession, but one which brought us brought it back to its fountain. Now, that's a classical statement. That's a, that's a humanist statement, to, its, to the fountain. All right? to its original purity. Offended by the novelty, I lent an unwilling ear, and at first, I confess, strenuously and passionately resisted to confess that I had all my life been in ignorance and error. So there's pride. And to say, everything that you've thought up to this point, you've been wrong. And that's hard. You know, I at length perceived as if light had broken in upon me. It's a key phrase. We'll talk about it in a minute. In what a sty of error I had wallowed and how much pollution and impurity I had thereby contracted. Being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen, as in duty bound, I made it my first business to betake myself to thy way, O God, condemning my past life not without groans and tears. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress." Well, that's the best you're going to get. I mean, that's Calvin's testimony. All right. John Piper has some comments, though, on uh, what he says here, specifically this idea of light breaking in upon Calvin. How this happened is extremely important, and we need to see Calvin himself describe it in his institute, especially in Book 1, Chapters 7 and 8. Here he wrestles with how we can come to a saving knowledge of God through the Scriptures. His answer is the famous phrase, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. For example, he says, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. So, two things came together for Calvin to give him a saving knowledge of God. Scripture and the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Neither alone suffices to save. That's that's an incredibly important statement. It can't just be Scripture and it can't just be the Spirit. But how does this actually work? What does the Spirit do? The answer is not that the Spirit gives us added revelation to what is in Scripture, but that He awakens us as from the dead to see and taste the divine reality of God in Scripture, which authenticates it as God's own Word. He says, quote, Our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty in Scripture, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. There is the key for Calvin. The witness of God to Scripture is the immediate, unassailable, life-giving revelation to the mind of the majesty of God manifest in the Scriptures themselves. Over and over again, in his description of what happens in coming to faith, you see his references to the majesty of God revealed in Scripture and vindicating Scripture. So already in the dynamics of his conversion, the central passion of his life is being ignited. 
We're almost at the bottom of this experience now. If we go just a bit deeper, you'll see more clearly why this conversion resulted in such an invincible constancy in Calvin's lifelong allegiance to the majesty of the word uh, of God, sorry, majesty of God and the truth of God's word. Here are the words that will take us deeper. Quote, therefore, illumined by the Spirit's power, we believe neither our own nor by anyone else's judgment that Scripture is from God, but above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty, just as if we were gazing upon the majesty of God himself, that it has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. By the way, no other testimony coming to it. What else would it be? Well, it would be the Roman Catholic magisterium. That's what it would be. That basically you can't know Scripture except by the church. The church tells you what Scripture is. So there wouldn't even be a Bible if it weren't for the Roman Catholic Church, so the Roman Catholic apologists would say. Luther, uh, Calvin, Luther, both of them would have said, that's rubbish. The Scripture predates the Church. The, the Scripture causes the Church. There wouldn't be a Church if there weren't for Scripture, because faith comes by hearing the Word. That's really what it's saying. And so this direct testimony does not need to be mediated to us through the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. That's what he's saying. The internal witness of the Spirit in John Calvin is a work of enlightenment, whereby... Through the medium of verbal testimony, the blind eyes of the Spirit are open and divine realities come to be recognized and embraced for what they are. This recognition, Calvin says, is as immediate and unanalyzable as the perceiving of a color or a taste by physical sense, an event about which no more can be said than when appropriate stimuli were present, it happened, and when it happened, we know it happened. J.I. Packer. So I, I got onto that after I put this quote down last week in preparation for the lecture, I got into this whole thing and I've, I've looked it up and I, I'm just I'm con- convinced of this, that there can be no verbal definition of a color that differentiates it from another color. Right? How would you define red that differentiates it from blue? There just is no way to do it. Red is red. And if you start telling me, well, red is the color of an apple and I'm, I'm talking about you're going to explain color to a blind person. You just can't do it. And so, in effect, that's what's saying here. There is a direct testimony to the Spirit. And without that, the things of God are foolishness to you. And they will remain so. So you can't just have the Scripture and you can't just have the Spirit. You've got to have both. And that's what happened. That's basically what Calvin said. I read it. At first, I was angry that it was different than I'd been raised, different than I'd thought all my life. My pride got in the way. But at some point, God directly revealed to my spirit that this was truth. So I would think it goes, you know, if we go ahead in church history to Jonathan Edwards' wonderful sermon during the Great Awakening, and that is um, a divine and supernatural light directly imparted to the soul, shown to be a rational and scriptural doctrine. That's a pure Edwards title, all right? Um, But what is he talking about? Well, the sermon text was uh, Matthew 16, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So God has the power to reveal Christ directly to the human heart by Scripture. That's how he does it. And isn't it true that the ongoing work of the Spirit is always in mm-hmm. union with and never in contradiction to the Word of God? Yes, I think so. Yeah, We're going to get to that. The sermon I've been working on this week that I will not preach for another few weeks, but um, Hebrews 3, 7, and 8, where it says, So as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's just unbelievably important for me on the, on the connection of these two. Okay, where does the Holy Spirit say that? Well, in Scripture. <laughs> and so really, the people who would pit the internal testimony against Scripture, what they're really doing is, Spirit as I hear him, 
to Spirit as He speaks in Scripture. And He has ordained that Spirit speaking in Scripture is a clearer testimony to the whole body of Christ than Spirit as I hear Him in the quietness of my heart. But the flip side is, without the Spirit's testimony in my heart, I'll never accept it as Scripture. I'll never see it as the Word of God. I'll continue to see it as foolishness. So the two of them just have to go together. And that's really what he's saying. So, however it happened, it happened. If you don't think so, read some of his sermons and commentaries, and after a while you'll be convinced that Calvin was a Christian. All right? So somewhere along there he was converted. We don't know much more about it, but it happened. So, yes? Would you say that, um, I mean, obviously the, the conversion experience has already happened to me and to many of the people in here, but we're still interested in having the Spirit reveal the Scripture to us as much as possible. So is there, would Cal, so Calvin simply did not write about that process at all. A lot. No, he wrote about it a lot, just not in reference to himself. He didn't give you his own testimony. But he talks about it in the Institutes a lot. He, I, I was reading one today. Uh, his, both, I read both his sermon and his commentary on Psalm 119, verse 18, which says, Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. So, I mean, he just goes right to the Holy Spirit at that point and says that we are naturally blind. And without, even now as Christians, without the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, we will not see clearly what is in the Scripture. But we must rely on him to see what's in the Bible. So he actually talks about a lot. Practically, you mean? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, prayer. I mean, we, we ask God. I mean, it is a prayer. And I, actually, Calvin talks about that. He says, we cry out to God for this illumination. We ask him to send the Spirit. And, you know, it reminds me of Jesus healing that man in stages. What do you see? I see men like trees walking around. You know, it's like he was blind, completely blind a moment before. Men like trees walking around is still a miracle. It seems like half a miracle, though. You know, I always wondered about that one. Jesus not having a good day, you know, miracle working power, not quite what it was. You know, we all have our good days and our bad days. That's ridiculous. Clearly, he wanted a two-stage healing. And uh, at least part of it, I think, is to teach us that, uh, you know, everything comes from God. And so the ability to receive any light at all is a gift of God. But then the ability to see clearly things as they really are is also a gift from God. So for, for us as Christians, I would say, you know, you go to the text and you do what the psalmist does. Open my eyes, he says to God. He prays. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. All right, so Calvin was converted. Now he is a reformer in the making. God is going to shape him and prepare him to take a leadership role in the continental reformation. Calvin fled Paris in the middle of the night, lowering himself out of a window by means of sheets and escaping to safety in the guise of a vine dresser with a hoe on his shoulder. Now, I had made a statement recently that Calvin's life is boring compared to Luther's. I kind of stand corrected. I mean, this sounds kind of exciting. I mean, this might make a good movie. You know, I mean, he's just running. He's running for his life as uh, King Francis's forces are trying to track down the Lutherans. Calvin then suffered imprisonment for a short time. We don't know a lot about that, but then fled to the estate of this man, Louis de Tillet, and uh, he was a, wealth, a wealthy sympathizer of the Reformation cause. And in this quiet nest, so to speak, Calvin had the opportunity to spend five months in Dutile's, um extensive theological library. Now, five months for Calvin is like 15 years for you and me, all right? Um, he used the time well, let's put it that way. Because, I mean, by the time he emerges, he's like the leading, leading theologian in the con- uh, continental Europe. It's just amazing what happened and how quickly it did. He poured over the Bible, works of Augustine and other church fathers. God used Calvin's astonishing genius, his hard work, and his quiet retreat time to shape him into a theologian in a relatively short amount of time. By the way, I was trying to track down one story. Early in Calvin's life as a reformer, he was in a debate with some Catholic scholars. 
and he was one of the youngest and least well-known um, of those debating for the uh, Protestant cause. And they were getting beaten, basically, by the Catholic scholars. All right? We should not imagine that dismissing medieval Catholicism is easy to do. And uh, finally, Calvin just started quoting the Church Fathers, Augustine, etc. It seems like what we would call from a photographic memory. Because you would think there would just be one edition of Augustine they're all working with. And he'd say, Augustine and his work, such and such, uh, you'll find it on page 63, about in the middle. And he's got nothing in his hands. He's just standing there and just, you know, and after that, you know, that's intimidating. You know, you look at that and it's like, wow. And, you know, you don't, you're, you don't have Augustine right. You're misquoting him, etc. And uh, just won the day. That's the kind of mind that he had. And that's how he used his five months, you know, in preparation. So God uh, worked in him and shaped him and prepared him. Shortly thereafter, Calvin settled in Basel, Switzerland, began writing the great work of his life, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, as it first started, it was really just little more than a simple catechism. It was just a, just a uh, you know, he's unfolding just basic statements on the catechism, the Nicene Creed, I think it was on the creed. Um, it just changes form radically to the second edition and then continues to develop after that. But still, remarkable and clear the way it was written, the Institutes, even at that first stage. So five ever-expanding editions would become the defining masterpiece of Reformation systematic theology, uh, a legacy for centuries to come. The work was dedicated to King Francis I, okay, the persecuting king, the Roman Catholic king. He dedicates the Institutes to Francis uh, basically on behalf of the people that Francis is persecuting to explain to him, to Francis, the faith of these people and to try to persuade him to repent and to believe. He said, While I lay hidden in Basel and known only to a few people, many faithful and holy persons were burnt alive in France. It appeared to me that unless I opposed the perpetrators to the utmost of my ability, my silence could not be vindicated from the charge of cowardice and treachery. This was the consideration which induced me to publish my Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was published with no other design than that men, men should know what was the faith held by those whom I saw basely and wickedly defamed. So he wants to stick a doctrinal flag in the martyrs' lives and their, and their, and their willingness to die. He wants King Francis and, the, and those that are not persuaded yet by the Reformation to know the Reformation faith. Piper makes a comment about this. He said, so when you hold the institutes of John Calvin in your hand, remember that theology for John Calvin was forged in the furnace of burning flesh. And that Calvin could not sit idly by without some effort to vindicate the faithful and the God for whom they suffered. I think we would perhaps do our theology better if more were at stake in what we said. So we have a sense of the seriousness of it. I think we'd be more serious. And by the way, it, you know, it doesn't happen much in this church. And for that, I'm grateful. But, you know, you're in Bible studies and, you know, you, you talk about theology and, and then somebody says, oh, we're getting deep here. You know, it's like, come on. These things are deep things. Let's get deep here. Let's just be sure we're t telling the truth, but let's not be afraid of challenging ourselves doctrinally, etc. And try to understand the deep things of the Word of God. Let's not be trivial. I mean, Calvin wanted Francis and the persecutors to know the doctrines and to know what it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
They are, and they're very devotional. You know, it's somewhat like uh, Augustine's uh, Confessions, etc. I mean, you ought to just pick up a copy of Augustine's Confessions. They're really readable. And the same thing with Calvin's Institute. So thanks for that testimony. Well, now let's get to one of the more interesting moments in Calvin's life, the providence that brought him to Geneva, which would become the focus geographically of the rest of his, his life work. Uh, after a temporary amnesty was granted to French exiles, Calvin returned briefly to France. He collected his belongings, brother Antoine, sister Marie, departed France at that point for the rest of his life. He intended to settle in the southern Germany, German city of Strasbourg. Now, while en route to Strasbourg, Calvin was redirected because a war had broken out between Charles V, that was a Holy Roman uh, Emperor, and Francis I of France. Both of them are Catholics, but they're always fighting. They're fighting. <laughs> And uh, troop movements blocked the road to Strasbourg, so he has to detour through Geneva. He had no interest in being in Geneva. John Piper says, In retrospect, one has to marvel at the providence of God that he should so arrange armies to position his pastors where he would. Okay, it's all about getting Calvin to Geneva. It wouldn't, you know, in the end, very few people know about that war. But uh, what Calvin did in Geneva is still bearing fruit, really. And so, you know, it's amazing. What is the true story of history? Uh, think kingdom of Jesus Christ first. All right, don't think so much about the rise and fall of this or that empire. Calvin intended only to stay there one night. Now, realize by this time he has published the Institutes. He's a well-known theologian. Okay, and there was a man there who knew about him. Uh, his goal in life, Calvin's goal in life, was to find some quiet nest like Dutulet's library, and be in that quiet nest and write books and pamphlets and things. You know, looking for a place for that. Okay, he wanted to be a quiet scholar. Uh, but God had other plans, and so he raises up this man, William Farrell, who was a very fiery, zealous reformer who's working there in Geneva. He heard that Calvin was staying the night in Geneva, finds wherever he was, and goes to uh, encounter him, if that's the right verb. Okay, persuade him, I guess. Deal with him. Farrell, um, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, said Calvin, for which I wish to keep myself free from other pursuits. And finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation. That's a curse, friends. That God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. Basically, Farrell said, may God curse your studies if you don't come help us with the Reformation here in Geneva. You know, you're going to get a disease. Something's going to happen to your intestines. You know, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to go blind. And may you go blind. If you don't come help us, this kind of thing. And I'm not recommending this kind of persuasion, but God used it here. In any case, he wasn't staying without it. So apparently that's what it took. So Calvin settled in Geneva and began his pastoral ministry there. However, it didn't last. He and Farrell began to you know, seek a reformation of, of life in the city, uh, in the church and in the city, working on church life in Geneva. They drew, they drew up a confession of faith and an oath for the 10,000 citizens of Geneva to bring about clear reform in the city. But they soon met with strong opposition. Now, a key issue, interestingly, Calvin and Farrell desire to keep the Lord's table pure from open sinners. 
and they wanted to use excommunication, that's kind of really the home base of the word, um, to do it. And uh, they didn't want that kind of a pure church. Uh, They didn't want the Lord's Supper to be fenced by these pastors. And so they were angry by it. And it's ironic and interesting because it was on this very issue that Jonathan Edwards lost his ministry in Northampton. That this very issue, it's amazing really when you think about it, and that uh, uh, Edwards did not want people who did not, had, did not have a clear profession of faith in Christ to be taking the Lord's Supper. And uh, these folks were libertines. We'll get to who the libertines were uh, you know, in a few moments. But uh, this issue led eventually to their expulsion and legal banishment from the city of Geneva in 1538. So Piper said, Calvin probably breathed a sigh of relief at this point. Good, I can get back to my quiet studies he thought. So God has relieved him from the crush of pastoral duties and he could be about his studies. But when another man, Martin Bootser, found out about Calvin's availability, he did the same thing to get him to go to Strasbourg that Farrell had done to get him to go to Geneva. He used the example of Jonah at this point. You remember what happened when Jonah tried to run away from the Lord? Remember the, uh, the storm and the shipwreck and throw me into the sea and the sinking down and then the fish? Do you want that to happen to you, Calvin? You need to come to Strasbourg and minister with us. I'm wondering if the word had got out that this is the way to do it with Calvin. You know, this is the approach to take. He's not going to listen to anything else. So Calvin wrote that most excellent servant of Christ, Martin Bootser, employing a similar kind of remonstrance and protestation as that to which Farrell had recourse before, drew me back to a new station. Alarmed by the example of Jonah, which he set before me, I still continued in the work of teaching. So he continued his pastoral ministry. So they went to Strasbourg, uh, where for three years, 1538 to 1541, Calvin pastored a Protestant congregation of approximately 500 French-speaking refugees. So these are French people that are fleeing for their lives from, from King Francis and from the persecution in France. And so Calvin is basically their pastor at that point. Calvin also taught in the local theological institute there, and he wrote his first commentary uh, on Romans, which I find interesting. In the introduction there, he wrote a letter... Um, to a friend of his, explaining why he was writing a commentary on Romans. He felt the need to explain it since there are already so many commentaries on Romans. I mean, how many have been published since then? But Calvin felt he needed to defend why we have yet another commentary on Romans. And he found that most of the commentaries were just too long. They were unwieldy. People, uh, people were never going to read them. It was too difficult to read. So he felt, along with his friend, and they had shared this conversation, he was just referring to it in the letter, that the key issues with a good commentary were lucid brevity. Lucid brevity. Lucid means clarity. There was a a clarity, a clear teaching and that it should be as brief as possible. And so Calvin's commentaries are characterized by that right straight through. They're really remarkably short. You know, um, Romans is coupled together with uh, Thessalonians in the edition I have and it's about that thick. The book's about that big and it's about that thick. Now, that might not be that impressive to you, but if you know anything about commentaries on Romans, they can get, well, they can get multi-volume. As a matter of fact, someone came to me recently and uh, asked if I had any commentaries on Hebrews. I said, many. Uh, What are you interested in? Well, I'm doing a Bible study. I said, you need to tell me the level, okay? What do you want? I have a 100-page pamphlet, all right, once you fill in the blanks on Hebrews. I have a paperback uh, commentary, about 250 pages. I have um, F.F. Bruce hardback, about 350 pages with some Greek and some footnotes and all that. 
I have A.W. Pink, which is up around 1,300 pages. It'll take you the rest of the next two years to get through. And then I have John Owen, which is seven volumes on the book of Hebrews. And the print is so small, you need a magnifying glass to read it. Footnotes like you wouldn't believe. So what would you like? They said, well, not Owen. Okay, we don't <laughs> need that. Don't need 112 pages on one verse. Um, so, um, But Calvin went for lucid brevity, and I, I keep that in mind. I do. And the Sermon on the Mount is, what is it, 145 verses, something like that. And if you were to just preach it through, it would be, I would guess, about 15 minutes. You know? It's just amazing how much you can get done with lesser words if they're the right words. And uh, Calvin was just excellent at that. A little frustrating, though, sometimes. You might go to Calvin for something on Romans 9 or whatever, and it's such a deep, deep chapter, and Calvin's comments on that verse will be about a paragraph and may not cover everything you want him to cover. So, But there it is. He was always seeking lucid brevity. So he wrote his first commentary, Romans, and then completed, as I said, the second edition of, of his Institutes. He also met a widow there named Idolette de Bure, Stordur. Um, de Bure was her, her um, maiden name. Stordur was the name of the man that she married. Uh, her former husband, John Stordur, had been, uh, she and, and he had been listed as Anabaptist. Now, you have to understand something about the Anabaptists. They were persona non grata throughout Europe. I mean, neither the Protestants nor the Catholics wanted them. They were looked on as revolutionaries. Some of them really were revolutions. Some of them were, were flat-out weird. I mean, just weird, weird, weird people. Like there was this one, called John of Leiden, who took over a city, you know, Leiden, and, and turned it into an Old, Old Testament uh, theocracy in which polygamy was reestablished and, and death penalty for certain Old Covenant rules and all that. He was wacko. And like the only thing that the Protestant and Catholics in that area could agree with is that this guy had to be exterminated like a rodent. All right, and so they, they had joint military exercise and dealt with them, okay? Well, that was an extreme version of Anabaptism, okay? There were some good versions as well. Uh, some would say that they are the predecessors of the modern Baptists, although that link is historically debated. I can say that the common theme between both Anabaptists and Baptists is let's simply go to the New Testament and try to find out what the church is about in the New Testament. And they didn't see infant baptism there. Uh, they didn't see it there. They didn't see it exemplified. They didn't see it commanded. It just wasn't there. And it isn't, is it? And if you think it is, come and talk to me afterwards, all right? But I, it isn't there. And so the Anabaptist Conrad Grable and others in, in Zwingli's in Zurich started a movement. Eventually, they began per, be persecuted by Zwingli. Everybody persecuted these guys, including Calvin, all right? Um, but Calvin happened to marry an Anabaptist widow, which I find interesting. You know, I find it, I find it fascinating. Um, but she was a blessing to his life. Uh, Calvin married her in 1540 when he was 31 years old. It wasn't a romantic match. I wonder what their courtship was like. I mean, what would it have been like to be married to John Calvin? But um, at any rate, it was a blessed marriage, and Karen, uh, Calvin did uh, cherish her deeply. They suffered a lot. Um, I'll tell you this, I, I don't know what the number is, but John Owen, I think his wife gave birth to 16 children, and one of them survived to past the age of 20. I mean, think about that. Think of just the number of funerals that you're going to, the number of miscarriages, the number of, of infants that die in infancy. It's just, I mean, when, when John Owen wrote Death of Death and the Death of Christ, I, I think he knew death better than most of us do. And, and the joy of knowing that someday death will be dead um, is really remarkable. Uh, but Calvin suffered a great deal as well, Calvin and his wife. 
Um, they uh, suffered th- uh, through a miscarriage, a loss of a daughter at birth, and the loss of a two-week-old son. And of that, Calvin wrote, the Lord has certainly inflicted a bitter wound in the death of our infant son, but he is himself a father, and he knows what is good for his children. So his wife, Idolette, herself died of tuberculosis uh, at, age 15, uh, at age 40 in, in 1549 after uh, about nine years of marriage. Calvin wrote to his friend, um, Pierre Viret, a few uh, days after her death is what he said, I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one who, had it been so ordered, would not only have been the willing sharer of my indigence, poverty, but even of my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the entire course of her illness. She was more anxious about her children than about herself. As I feared these private cares might annoy her to no purpose, I took occasion on the third day before her death to mention that I would not fail in discharging my duty to her children. Taking up the matter immediately, she said, I have already committed them to God. When I said that um, when I said that, that was not to prevent me from caring for them, she replied, I know you will not neglect what you know has been committed to God. Uh, lately also, uh, when a certain woman insisted that she should talk with me uh, regarding these matters, I for the first time heard her give the following brief answer. Assuredly, the principal thing is that they live a pious and holy life. My husband is not to be urged to instruct them in religious knowledge and in the fear of God. If they be pious, I'm sure he will gladly be a father to them. But if not, they do not deserve that I should ask for anything in their behalf. This nobleness of mine will weigh with me more than a hundred recommendations. So he loved his wife. He cared for um, uh, cared for her two children who were not his children except stepchildren. Uh, one of them, I don't remember which now, uh, I, think, I think it was the daughter, brought Calvin a great deal of grief. Uh, she did not live a godly life, and he continued to try to minister to her and care for her. Uh, it was a difficult thing, um, but he tried to be a father. He had no biological child that survived infancy, and he never remarried after that. All right, so he's in Strasbourg. He's ministering to this church of 500 French refugees. Meanwhile, back in Geneva, things are going very, very poorly. All right, after Calvin and Pharaoh left, the city was going downhill quickly. And they came to realize, after all, that Calvin had been the right man for the job. They wanted him as pastor. And so and on May 1st, 1541, the city council rescinded the ban on Calvin. So it was illegal for Calvin to return to Geneva. So they had to rescind the legal ban on him and then, at that point, held him up as a man of God and invited him to come back. But Calvin didn't want to go back, would you? I mean, really, would you really want to go back there and minister to those people? I mean, the libertines are still there, the ones that had caused all the trouble. And so it took a great deal of courage for him to agree to go back. In October, he said to Farrell that though he preferred not to go, listen to this, yet because I know that I am not my own master, I offer my heart as a true sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this became Calvin's motto, and the picture on his emblem included a hand holding out a heart to God with the inscription in Latin, promptly and sincerely. I want to give my heart to you promptly and sincerely. In other words, if you ask, why did Calvin go back to Geneva after being banished from the city? The answer is, God commanded me to do it. And I went promptly and sincerely. That's what I wanted to do. And so he went back. September 13, 1541, Calvin returned and settled in Geneva and would never move from there again. Uh, the Reformation of Gen- Geneva would now become the focus of the rest of his life now. As we already noted, his first sermon picked up where he had left off three years before. Talked about that last week. 
the next verse. Isn't that great? I just love that. Calvin was very tough-minded. Um, I think you had to be uh, in order to achieve God's work back then. But expositional preaching then was to be the centerpiece of his program for Reformation. As I said, he preached on average about 10 times every 14 days. So not every single day, but close. Close. Midweek lectures, midweek sermons, two sermons on Sunday, just a river of preaching. And excellent preaching, too. This was the centerpiece of what he was doing in the Reformation day after day, week after week, and year after year. And it would make the, this lake city of Geneva the brightest light for the gospel in all the world. Let me say a comment about that. I just think the center, the spiritual center of Christianity, in other words, where things are going best and the gospel has had the best impact on the surrounding culture has just moved throughout church history for 2,000 years. It's, it's not always one place. Definitely, on the day of Pentecost, it was Jerusalem. You could argue that a short number of years later it would have been Antioch. You know, that, that, there, that there was more spiritual vitality in Antioch than in Jerusalem, though we don't know that for sure, but probably it's, it's possible. And uh, Antioch was a center of, of patristic Christianity for, for a long time. So was Alexandria as well. Um, you know, after a while, uh, you know, you could argue that it was uh, whether Constantinople maybe. I don't know what you think about what happened under Constantine. Certainly after Luther... Um, Wittenberg, you know, if you could go anywhere in the world in 1518 to hear the gospel preached, you'd go, you want to go to Wittenberg and hear it there. Uh, at some point it was Geneva under Calvin, uh, but then it left. And I don't think that you would choose Geneva now on the face of the earth. If I could go anywhere to hear, it would be Geneva. I don't think so. You know, I think you could argue that, that during the Puritan era, Oxford would be the place to go. Lots of godly Puritan pastors in that area, etc., but not anymore. One could argue that uh, Boston, under the, in the time of, um, of the, uh, the Puritan exodus in 1630 and all that, might be a shining center of Christianity. Or Northampton during the Great uh, Awakening. I don't know. But it just moves, doesn't it? I mean, where is it now? I don't know. <laughs> Um, thank you, Ronnie. Appreciate it. I don't know what, what do you say to that? But um, you know, one might one might argue. You know, who knows? Somewhere in, in South Korea. You know, I don't know. Uh, some some other place. I don't I don't really know. Nor could we identify it. I'm just telling you. You know, the wind blows where it wishes. The spirit moves. And during that time, it was Geneva. Geneva was the place. Calvin had a growing influence throughout Europe. Um, he began to be known just by his publications, by his writings. Uh, during these tumultuous times, lots of political upheaval. I mean, it was really a remarkable, remarkable time. The most powerful military uh, on earth was held by the Turks under Suleiman the Magnificent. And so the, the, uh, both Protestants and Catholics were afraid of a Turkish invasion at any time. Um, in 1533, the Battle of Mohawks occurred and a Christian um, army, so to speak, I'm not saying all of them were believers, but... Uh, representing the Austria, the Hungarian uh, em- Empire, uh, was defeated by Turkish forces. And it really just opened the back door coming up that way into Europe. And so many people, including Luther, thought the end was near. So it was, it was a lot of stress, a lot of battles. We already mentioned the war going on between Francis and Charles V. So there were refugees, people you know, uprooted from their homes and fleeing for their lives. Lots of them came to Geneva. Uh, for example, French Protestants known as Huguenots, and the Marian exiles, these are English Protestants fleeing Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, so-called, Roman Catholic daughter of King Henry VIII. 
There are other refugees coming to Geneva from Germany and Italy. And in a short time, uh, Geneva's population doubled to over 20,000 people. One of these exiles was John Knox. And Knox would become one of the most amazing reformers um, in, in history, a powerful reformer of Scotland and a strong uh, believer in the Reformation as taught by John Calvin. And Knox said a um, very famous statement about the city of Geneva. He was there having fled for his life under Queen Mary. He was there and he said in a letter to a friend, Geneva is, quote, the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. In other places I confess Christ to be truly preached, but manners and religion to be so seriously reformed I have not yet seen in any other place besides. So he's really talking at this point about, about a whole culture of change, the impact of the Word of God in every area. Amazing. Calvin also carried on an amazing and profound correspondence, letters with important figures, reformers, kings and queens, dukes, etc., leaders, political leaders, um, religious leaders, um, a number of, of letters to King Edward, who is uh, Henry VIII's successor, who was Protestant, but didn't live long. But anyway, always seeking to advance the cause of Christ. His letters are four editions. Baker uh, Bookhouse put together, uh, you know, it's four editions of letters. And they're long and, and deep. Yes, Susan. Does anyone speak of what happened in Geneva as being a, quote, revival, unquote? Because we talked about how the um, Great Awakenings resulted in some real changes in behavior. I would accept that. I don't know if I've heard that in a scholarly sort of way, but maybe so. You know, if you really think about it, I mean, the, the city was a mess when he got there. I mean, the Libertines, and, and, and there were issues all the way through. But to see that big a change, Calvin would readily acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and step aside and not say it was him. So, you know, absolutely, why not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit bringing that kind of significant change? Uh, he also had a very difficult life. Uh, life was rough. It was tough in those days. And there are three, uh, or actually four different aspects of that. First is just the hard work. If you look at all the books that he wrote, you know, all the books. I remember I was talking to somebody recently, and, and he didn't even have a computer. And then I paused and said, that's probably why he was able to get all that work done. You know, <laughs> it was just paper and pen, you know, et cetera, and no distractions. Uh, Wolfgang Musculus called him a bow always strong. So he never relaxed. He's always ready to be used by God. You know, it's really intense individual. Colladin says, he was for many years with a single meal a day and never took anything between two meals. His reasons were that the weakness of his stomach and his migraines could only be controlled, he had found by experiment, by continual abstinence. Actually, I got my teeth uh, cleaned thoroughly today. It was quite painful, but helpful. And I said, so let me get it straight. If I don't eat anything the rest of my life, my teeth will stay really clean. She said, yes, but you'll have other problems. So, you know, starvation. But uh, Calvin found that things were best if he just didn't eat. And so, um, you know, you see pictures of him and he looks quite thin and sickly. And he was sickly. Um, frankly, all these guys were sick, sicker than, I mean, if you, if you took Martin Luther on his average day or Calvin, on, you wouldn't, you'd be in bed or you'd be not doing much. These guys shook it off. And they had to or else they wouldn't have done anything, really. If they're waiting for just days in which they really, really feel good, there weren't many of them. All right? Uh, Spurgeon was the same way with his gout. You know, it was, it was like being bitten by a viper every day and uh, terrible um, pain. So, uh, back to Calvin. His reasons were that we... I already read that. Um, on the other hand, he was apparently careless of his health in one sense, worked night and day with scarcely a break. 
So you can hear the drivenness, listen to this, in this letter to Fallet in 1546. Quote, apart from the sermons and the lectures, there's a month gone by in which I have scarce done anything. In such wise, I'm almost ashamed to live thus useless. Well, if you read between the lines, that was 20 sermons and 12 lectures that month, on the average one a day. It's like, well, I mean, this is ridiculous how useless and indolent I am. So, wow. So, unremitting labor, terrible sickness. To get a clearer picture of his iron constancy, add to this work schedule the continuous ill health that he endured. He wrote to his physicians in 1564 when he was 53 years old and described his colic and spitting of blood and ague and gout and the excruciating sufferings of his hemorrhoids. Worst of all seemed to be the kidney stones that had to pass unrelieved by any sedative. What follows in the account that I'm relating to you here is a detailed description of what it was like for him to pass one, and I chose to... But I can't even imagine. You see these things on the microscope. They're jagged, crystalline edges, like with knives, and so there would be lots of blood, and I can't even imagine what that was like to go through that. So tremendous pain, fevers, cyclical fevers. He had those, uh, you know, two different fever patterns. Yes, go ahead. a cold and it could go to pneumonia the one week later and they'd be dead. Yeah, I, that's a real thing, for sure. Soon, yeah, it could be anything. Okay, well, you know, i got to kind of take care of myself because I, you know, I probably have 10, 15 more years and whatever we have, whatever sense we have of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, we should not, you know, James says we shouldn't presume right. on the future. We don't know. And so that's a good point. That just drove him on. Time was short. All right, now the Libertines. Let's talk about them in, briefly in the time we have. He, had, he was bitterly persecuted by these people. Libertines means let me live and let live. You know, free to live how I want to live. Stay out of my business. All right? Well, that was difficult. On top of all this pressure and physical suffering with threats to his own life, he was not unfamiliar with the sound of mobs outside his house in Geneva threatening to throw him in the river, firing their muskets into the air. On his deathbed, Calvin said to the pastors gathered, I have lived here among com- amid continual bickerings. I have been from derision saluted of an evening before my door with 40 or 50 sh- shots of an arquebus, which is a, a, a large gun. I think this is interesting. This is his deathbed. You guys were really mean to me. You know, I find that, you know, I just think that's interesting. You know, he knows he's dying and he's like, I just want you to know you, you really made it tough for me. Um, one of the most persistent thorns in Calvin's side, as I mentioned, were the libertines in Geneva. Here, too, his perseverance was triumphant in a remarkable way. In every city in Europe, men kept mistresses. When Calvin began his ministry in Geneva in 1536, at the age of 27, there was a law in Geneva that said a man could keep only one mistress. Even after Calvin had been preaching as pastor in St. Peter's Church for over 15 years, the immorality was a plague, even in the church. The libertines boasted in their license For them, the communion of saints meant the common possession of goods, houses, bodies, and wives. So they practiced adultery. They indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom and at the same time claimed the right to sit at the Lord's table. The crisis of the communion came to a head in 1553. A well-to-do libertine named Berthelier was forbidden by the consistory, that's the leadership of the church, to eat the Lord's Supper but appealed the decision to the council of the city. That's the secular government, which overturned the ruling of the consistory. 
on the issue of the Lord's Supper. This created a crisis for Calvin, who would not think of yielding to the state the rights of excommunication, nor of admitting a libertine to the Lord's table. The issue, as always, was the glory of Christ. He wrote to Viret, I took an oath that I had resolved rather to meet death than to profane so shamefully the the Holy Supper of the Lord. My ministry is abandoned. If I suffer the authority of the consistory to be trampled on and extend the supper of Christ to open scoffers, I should rather die a hundred times than subject Christ to such foul mockery. Well, the Lord's day of testing arrived. The libertines were present to eat the Lord's Supper. It was a critical moment for the Reformed faith in Geneva. The sermon had been preached. I wonder what it was like to preach that sermon. It's like shoot out at the OK Corral day. And he knew it was coming. And he, gets through the, he gets through the sermon. Time has come for the Lord's Supper. The prayers have been offered. Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him and he was now ready to distribute them to the communicants. Then, all of a sudden, a rush began by the troublers in Israel in the direction of the communion table. Calvin flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege while his voice rang through the building. These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. After this, said Beza, Calvin's first biographer, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all present as if the deity himself had been visible among them. Incredible courage at that point. And these guys would have killed him, I think, except that they had been held back by the hand of God. There was also, finally, the threat of military conquest by Roman Catholic armies, resulting in the inevitable arrest, torture, and execution as a heretic. So if the Roman Catholics had been able to defeat the Swiss armies and take over Geneva, Calvin would have been burned at the stake. No doubt about that. And at one point, in a letter to Melanchthon, he wrote that war was imminent in the region and that enemy troops could reach Geneva within half an hour. Whence you may conclude, he said, that we have not only exile to fear, but that all the most cruel varieties of death are impending over us, for in the cause of religion they will set no bounds to their barbarity. So basically, Calvin said they're about half hour away. Calvin's last will and testament is here. I'll just read uh, a bold section and we'll be done tonight. I also testify and declare that it is my full intention to pass the remainder of my life in the same faith and religion which he has delivered to me by his gospel, having no other defense or refuge of salvation than his gratuitous adoption on which alone my safety depends. I also embrace with my whole heart the mercy which he exercises towards me for the sake of Jesus Christ, atoning for my crimes by the merits of his death and passion, that in this way satisfaction may be made for all my transgressions and offenses and the remembrance of them blotted out. So here is a man who knew himself to be a sinner saved by grace, only by the grace of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to trace out uh, some, some key moments in the life of John Calvin. We thank you for his clarity. We thank you for his ability to teach. Thank you for his boldness, his ability to proclaim the word of God with boldness his courage on the Lord's Supper. Uh, Father, we thank you um, for what we can learn from him. But Lord, we think also of the greatness of Jesus Christ to call such loyal service from people just like this. I pray that we would be faithful to what our callings are, O Lord, in our generation. Help us to be as faithful to what you've called us to do as he was to what you called him to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.